Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. Three, two, one. Welcome, Facebook, to episode 23. Uh, Jeremy, it's the Jordan episode 23 of the Relius podcast with my friend, serial blockchain entrepreneur, venture, venture capitalist, as a tongue twister, with my friend, serial blockchain entrepreneur, and venture capitalist, Jeremy Gardner. Jeremy, Jeremy, hello. How are we doing? I'm wonderful, but thanks for having me. You're welcome. And Jeremy, how old are you, man? Like, I'm 23. How old are you? Uh, really getting close to being an adult. Uh, turn 27 uh, next month. You turn 27 next month. Okay. So... A lot of our followers uh, are very curious about young entrepreneurs and how they got to where they are so fast. I mean, Jeremy, you've done quite a lot of impressive things. I mean, can you kind of walk me through um, a timeline of your career? Sure. I mean, I think it's really important to point out that I've done a lot in the past five years, but for the vast majority of my life, I was just a total delinquent. Uh, getting thrown out of schools, getting arrested, total troublemaker. The bar was not set very high for me growing up, uh, just simply because, you know, if I didn't end up in jail or addicted to drugs or dead, my parents would have been very happy. Uh, So that actually, I think, turned into a, a major boon for myself because the bar was set so low. And so... What happened was at a young age, I knew I wanted to change the world. I wanted to make it better at scale. Uh, you know, I wasn't interested in serving just one meal. I wanted to serve thousands of meals. Uh, you know, if I if that if that is that how I was going to change the world. But I I thought the way to do this was to go into politics. Uh, hmm. And when I was in college, I developed my own major in political strategy. Uh, by the time I was a junior. Uh, or going into my junior year of college, I had worked for the governor of Massachusetts and then helped run the campaign of the woman who's now attorney general. Wow. And I became really disillusioned. Uh, I saw the massive inefficiency of government bureaucracy. I saw the overwhelming role of money in politics. And I realized that if I was going to spend my 20s in politics, I was going to end up really just pushing paper and raising money for politicians. And that wasn't particularly interesting to me. So I had this period of cognitive dissonance uh, going into the winter of my junior year of college, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And I actually was transferred to the University of Michigan, where I just happened to move into an apartment with a young Bitcoin. I was less interested in Bitcoin than kind of some of its applications, like being able to buy drugs off the lab. I thought that was interesting. But I thought it was mostly a speculative asset and good for these sort of illicit online purchases. But Mm. this young man convinced me to look at the technology more seriously, uh, convincing me to educate myself on how it could be used in the future. 
And shortly thereafter, I started to catch what I call the Bitcoin bug. He, the, the, the gentleman, Kennard, he, he implored me to join the University of Michigan Bitcoin Club. At the very first Bitcoin Club meetup at Michigan, uh, a reporter came and she mentioned that there were Bitcoin clubs at MIT and Stanford. And from the, there, I saw this organizing opportunity. Got on a call with the heads of the MIT and Stanford clubs that night, as well as the Michigan club. They're all talking about their respective successes and failures as organizations, offering to share resources. At the end of the call, not having had much to contribute because I was so new to everything, I suggested that we create an organization. Mm. And everyone's like, sure, go ahead, do it. And a month later, what is now known as a blockchain education network was born. And at the time, I just thought it was a bit of a red. This is a May booster. I, I, I wasn't that sold on Bitcoin yet. Uh, but within a, three months, by the end of the semester, we had over 100 chapters in 20 plus countries on every habitable continent. I was getting press. I was going to have to speak at conferences. And I just went deep down the rabbit hole. Mm. It would be through that nonprofit that I would meet my co-founder of my first real startup called Augur. Um, who, and he had started the Pomona Bitcoin Club down near LA. And so it was, it was a very serendipitous path. It wasn't, mm. it wasn't like a, this very logical extension of who I had been previously. Although I had always had entrepreneurial tendencies, it was more just a natural evolution. You know, I say luck is a byproduct of one's willingness to take risks. And mm. I was just willing to put myself out there pursue new things because I was in this period of my life where I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And that's how I ended up, you know, founding this organization, which led me to my first startup and then eventually dropping out of school and kind of going all in on this industry. That's, I mean, that is taking the risk, dropping out of school and doing that. But you know, Jeremy, what kind of um, resonated with me was you're saying, oh, it's kind of a delinquent starting out. And, you know, I've got plenty of friends who fit the exact mold that you have. And uh, I'm curious when you're saying, I'm going down this rabbit hole. I'm going down this. I'm taking this risk. Now, are you kind of trying to say that this is like a passion? This is like something that you just couldn't stop focusing about. You couldn't stop thinking about. And it was driving you to figure out some problem, whatever it was, until you got there. And so you took that risk. And is that kind of the the story well so, so it was just this massive opportunity all of a sudden i had found this new paradigm for the exchange of value between individuals which fundamentally is revolutionary because before bitcoin there was no way for two individuals uh on random points on the planet to interact with one another and exchange value with one another without mm -hmm. relying on intermediaries such as banks governments clearing houses depending on the sort of value exchange you're trying to do. And that, that to me, was a massive upgrade into humanity. I mean, like, even the Internet was more, more of a gradual evolution. We already had phones. We had fax machines. We had beepers. We already had to ways to exchange information in a fairly peer-to-peer -peer manner. But if we wanted to exchange value, we were still relying on the same centralized institutions that have existed for decades or even centuries. Suddenly, we now have this protocol that allows for the frictionless peer-to-peer -peer exchange of value. And that, to me, as someone that had you know, gone and protested at Ducati Park during Occupy Wall Street and seen that kind of undertaking fail, 
I, I believe that I had stumbled upon a technology while it was most likely to be unsuccessful due to its fundamentally revolutionary nature. If there was a 5% chance that we could be successful, it was worth pursuing. Mm. Uh, I had nothing to lose at that point in my life, and so I went all in. Now, has that percentage gone up? Are we more likely now to start using uh, blockchain yes. and exchanging cryptocurrency as, as value? Sure. I mean, to varying extents, but I now have, you know, 98% conviction that blockchain technology is here to stay. Okay. Whether any particular crypto asset or cryptocurrency, if you will, will be successful is another matter. But in and of itself, blockchain technology has been embraced by most of the world as a good form of database technology for at least a limited, limited number of applications. And, and you were talking just literally 30 seconds ago about um, uh, Wall Street, and you're talking earlier about politics. I start getting kind of a, a sense of corruption going on here, you know, um, coming from, yeah, I think I'm the last, I think I'm the last year that really remembers 9-11, and the last year um, that really remembers um, how different it was after that day. And the world really did change on uh, September 11th, 2001. It really did. And and then we experienced something um, like uh, 2008 with the financial crisis um, and, and transparency or the lack of transparency being a, a huge reason why that uh, occurred. Um, how can blockchain... Um, hear something like this, change something like this, change people's ways? Yeah, and to me, blockchain technology is the greatest antidote to the growingly Orwellian world that we live in. Mm. You know, it's 1984, as Orwell kind of predicted it, but it's 2018 and no one realizes it. You know, we have no privacy. You know, large corporations are in control, and yet we've kind of turned over and let it happen because it was so eventual. It really was the byproduct of these two watershed moments in history, the post 9-11 world and then, uh, and then the financial crisis in which, you know, first we said, all right, it's okay if the government surveils everything we do in the sake of national security. And then uh, it's okay if banks get a, uh, get away with rigging the entire financial system. We'll, we'll, we'll let them walk. And for individuals such as ourselves, you know, late millennials, that's the world we've grown up into. And, there's, and it feels fundamentally wrong. You know, older generations, you know, it feels so gradual. It's a lesser part of their lives. You know, you know they've been alive long enough to kind of be fatigued and, and not recognize how, how messed up the system is. For young people, we have seen this really just slippery slope evolve over the past two decades. And it's not okay. It's, it's, not, it's not a world I think any of us should want to live in. And so recognizing that sooner rather than later is really important. Definitely. And, and Jeremy, what about being a young entrepreneur in the tech world and, and blockchain? I mean, do you have some, I mean, sort of confidence when you're speaking with adults about why this thing can work and about why you can resonate more with your generation, the generation that's after us? 
I mean, when you're speaking with an adult, uh, a big issue for a lot of young entrepreneurs is they can't be taken seriously. Um, yeah, the, the difference is, is that uh, it, with blockchain technology, no adults know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that, My parents that, don't, that's for sure. That's, that's why it's really important as a young entrepreneur to occupy a niche that no one else has filled because the niche doesn't exist yet. Uh, if finding your own, um, you know, founder market fit is really important. Look, I'm not the smartest guy in the room when it comes to blockchain tech, but there are no experts either because the tech is so new and it's so quickly evolving. And so I can operate my own niche within this space. You know, one of my great skill sets in this space is just being a communicator of the technology, starting with a blockchain education network, evangelizing to young people. But then moving on and building companies in this space, being a venture capitalist, I'm as preeminently qualified to talk about this technology with world leaders and Fortune 500 CEOs as the next guy. And so because I was in this space so early, uh, I'm taken seriously when I come into a room. You know, I, I'm, I'm an advisor to the EU parliament. I constantly am kind of interacting with board members and CEOs of the world's largest companies. And they're forced to take me seriously simply because there's nobody else that has any more experience than I do in this space. Right. Well, uh, talk to me about, I'm curious, the EU parliament, what do you do for them? Do you just advise? Do you consult? What do you do? So the, the, that's, that's a very interesting byproduct of you know, some of my earlier evangelism. Mm -hmm. I was asked to go speak on a panel with a professor and a graduate student uh, from Stanford maybe three years ago now um, at the university that, uh, down in Palo Alto. And uh, there were several, it was a fact-finding committee from the EU parliament, from their kind of innovation and science council. And it was a bunch of MPs from across the continent. Uh, and there was, there was, you know, there were maybe a dozen of them. And for the most part, they were all kind of stodgy, uh, old, right. Right. Over fifty, Classic you know, politicians, you know, <laughs> but 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 one was this very young, good-looking Greek Greek MP. Uh, her name's Ava Kaili, and she was asking the most provocative, thoughtful questions. She didn't talk like a politician, and so I approached her after, and I was like, "It looks like you really kind of get this. Like we should talk further." We out, we went out for dinner later that week. Uh, and she just got really excited about the technology. And ever since, she's been kind of the foremost advocate for blockchain technology in the EU Parliament. She's helped pu push forward really amazing legislation. Uh, she's had me testify to members of Parliament. And uh, wow. it's just been an incredibly fruitful relationship. Wow, I bet you didn't see that one coming. That's, that's kind of cool how your career path just goes in different directions like that not that that's a full-time yeah. thing or anything but yeah i mean the, the whole the whole political strategy major in college and that early kind of foray right. into the world of politics has really paid off i mean you know i'm a, I'm a major contributor to coin center which is a lobbying group down on the hill mm -hmm. um i was just speaking to them a few days ago about kind of uh lobbying strategies uh i've met with the heads of most of the large bureaucratic agencies in the u.s and so I still I, I still take uh, take on that kind of political operative role when I need to. I don't mind it, uh, you know, but I, I, I try to keep it a very limited part of my life because right. it's eternally frustrating. The amount of progress you can make 
in the world of tech with a single startup is exponentially greater than almost anything I can do on Capitol Hill That's or in CEO. That's interesting take. Um, so, oh man, what was going to say? I was going to say, I, I was very curious about your lifestyle. What's the lifestyle of uh, you know someone who made it big in Bitcoin and, and uh, blockchain and you know man like walk me through what's the life like what's the life down there in Florida man? Uh, it's good. I mean, I've got I've got two houses. Um, one in San Francisco. It's called the Crypto Castle, and then I've got a Crypto Castle Miami Beach. Uh, th- th- this one in Miami is much more of a castle. Okay, so you're living in the crypto castle right now? Is that where you are? Yeah, so so my it was kind of a joke initially with San Francisco when, when I moved my first startup up to SF. We couldn't afford an office space, so we had like a home office. It was like a three bedroom that we turned into seven. Uh, it was just a house, but it overlooked all of San Francisco. And so our first house, which was a two bedroom that hold, hosted six people, we called it the Bitcoin basement. When we upgraded to this house, I called it the Crypto Castle, and it was kind of a joke. But some journalists heard about it, ended up writing articles about it. And at this point, I'm pretty sure my house has more articles written about it than <laughs> any uh, any startup I've ever founded. Uh, and then when I was looking to move down to Miami, hard time, you know, better weather, sunshine, beautiful women. I uh, I ended up, I, I at first was thinking about getting a condo, but it's like, hey, why do I, why don't I do another Crypto Castle? And, you know, I've, I've made the first house in San Francisco such a desired place to live in. You know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of startups have come out of that house. Multi, like over a half dozen millionaires have been minted there. Um, I, I, I thought, you know, may, I can probably do this down in Miami. And sure enough, I've managed to have a house where, you know, I, I have a bunch of brilliant people coming in and out. And I'm not even paying rent to live in a ma- mansion on the water. So, you right. know, it, exactly. it's a good lifestyle. Yeah, you know, not, not too bad. I, I, may, I may have made some money, but I'm, I'll always be Jewish. And so I, I, try, <laughs> I, I, I try to optimize my living situation. And I, I really love creating kind of these very inclusive working spaces full of interesting people, always having a dynamic exchange of information and ideas and always helping people kind of build the next great thing. I mean, that's kind of what I live for. Because lifestyle is good, you know. It, you know, most people still think I'm on the West Coast, so I'm not, I don't, and I don't take meetings on the West Coast until 9 a.m. Pacific time. So I'm not taking meetings until noon generally here. Right. So I, I, I've got a really great lifestyle. I sleep until 10, 10:30. Um, I get to work by 11 uh, a.m. and then I, I can just work till 11 p.m. There's nothing really gets going until around midnight Miami. So I can work 12-hour days. I mean, I'm logging 80 right. hours a week, but it's on my terms. I go out at night, get to bed by, you know, two or three and still get eight or nine hours of sleep. Um, and it's really ideal. Uh, it, it's, you know, kind of the dream lifestyle. Like, I would never want to not be working. And most people don't associate uh, Miami with work. But I actually get way more done here. The weather's beautiful. I just go work out by my pool. Um, and it, it's fairly ideal. I mean, never in a million years could I have expected doing this, you know, even five years ago. So Definitely. Well, well, first off, just don't be surprised when I show up at your door in South Beach and I'm knocking and I say, hey, you got a place to stay? Just don't be surprised. And then, we've, got, we've got a guest bedroom with multiple <laughs> beds. And, the, and then, Jeremy, the other thing is, you know, there's got to be people listening to me. I'm like, the hell with this kid. This kid's 27. He's got his own lifestyle. 
He's in South Beach. He wakes up at 10. But I think the crazy thing is working in the cubicle 9 to 5. It's almost like we're some robots or something. Um, you know, what do you have to say about the direction of society and where it can possibly go um, with the openings of technology? You know, it's not promising. Automation is definitely something that scares me. Uh, creating a future where people have meaningful work or something that makes them get up in the morning. You know, mm. a nine to five gives people at least a slight sense of purpose, a reason to go make money to pay the bills. But I don't know if that's sustainable forever. Uh, but no matter what you do, you should have a reason to wake up in the morning. You know, you see some of these people on Instagram that are living their best lives and they're not doing shit you know and and that's not that's not something to aspire to i would never want to be one of those people like you know i've got a a venture fund that i actively run i've got a magazine that i I, that i'm an editor of i've got two nonprofits i'm on the board of um i'm constantly working with entrepreneurs and startups i'm running my houses in san francisco miami i'm starting a new skincare company right now I mean, I'm constantly doing stuff. Like I said, I'm working, you know, 12 hour days. Uh, It's not at the same pace uh, that you'll see in San Francisco or LA or New York or Chicago. It's kind of that Miami based lifestyle where everything's a bit slower, but I'm getting just as much work done. And like I said, I mean, I I can log 80 hours a week of work, but it's definitely on my own terms. And, you know, I think that should be the goal. The goal should not to be, should not be the, you know, not work or work forever it it, it it should be to do work that's fulfilling to you and on your own terms i mean i i don't ever plan to retire right well don't count the days make the days count right right so i'm trying to think of uh the analogy for that crypto castle and i'm a big basketball guy so i was thinking i was like all right so kind of what he did is he just like started this open gym right at the open gym people can come to the gym they can play basketball and then you start forming teams in these open gyms and then some of the teams take off and some of the teams get their asses kicked and then the teams that really take off and win um are going to the next level and you've produced multiple multiple um businesses and and multi-million dollar companies and ventures out of the crypto castle is that right yeah, and just people that have just gone people. on and built yeah. great things. You know, I, you know, I, I think the first two steps to uh, successful entrepreneurship are, you know, most people skip to the creation stage. They just try to go build something. Mm-hmm. But before you go build something successfully, you have to be inspired and you have to ideate. You know, mm. once you have inspiration then thinking about great ideas is really the next step. And then lastly, there's the creation stage. And so I'm focused on inspiration and ideation. And then the creation is just a byproduct of that. Mm-hmm. But I think too many aspiring entrepreneurs just skip through trying to build something without really being inspired, without really kind of ideating around what they want to build. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy, so I just want to get this correct for our viewers. The nonprofit is the blockchain education network. And right. then the other one is called Unsung. It's kind of like Unsung. Uber for uh, unused food. If you're a restaurant, you're a house, ah. you're a caterer, a uh, supermarket, you can open this app and uh, you can uh, you can say what food you have and then volunteers go and pick it up. 
and then redistribute it to uh, you know homeless shelters, battered women shelters, places in need, uh, and that that should be launching the next year. Okay, so they're able to track like what products aren't being purchased, and then they have, you can go ahead well, and volunteer. Just, yeah, and... food that they're not going to be selling or right. using or leftovers. Yeah, interesting, interesting. That's that's a crazy t- uh, idea, and just the hat uh, the ability to have blockchain to track that's pretty unique. Um, now, for somebody that doesn't know, we've been talking about blockchain a lot, and maybe we just haven't been talking about what blockchain actually is. Um, can you kind of bring it down to layman's terms about what the blockchain mechanism vehicle is? Yeah, I mean, a, a blockchain is just a database. It's a ledger, ledger of uh, transactions. But unlike most of the databases that exist today, which, you know, occur on exists on a single server or set of computers owned by an organization. It's thousands of computers distributed around the world that are all validating the transactions in the network and that can never be altered. It's practically unhackable. Right. Uh, and so this sort of uh, the, the infiltrations you see of databases at Facebook and at Target and at JP Morgan, they're not really possible with, with the blockchain. These are these globally distributed databases with all these nodes all around the world validating transactions. Um, and, and, and it's a database where you really can't alter a transaction once it's occurred. Mm-hmm. And so it has a, a huge benefits for security and what we call immutability, the inability to change things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's got a proliferation of use cases that expand across industries, whether you're talking about land title records, whether you're talking about the oh, payment wow. of music royalties, uh, the the fractionalization um, and, and and tradeability of real estate, uh, you know the the use cases are unending. If there's any business where there historically have been middlemen, in theory with blockchain technology, you can disintermediate those middlemen and create a more peer-to-peer exchange of value. And Jeremy, what's like the downside to blockchain? Like I know I, I interviewed somebody who's doing something really cool. It's a company called Aid Tech, Aid Colon Tech. And what they do is they use blockchain to provide the first ever humanitarian aid to Syrian refugees who are uh, esca- you know, escaping their country due to the crime and war. And they were undocumented. They were able to get um, some credibility, um, some credit, and sent funds through the Irish uh, Red Cross um, to go in and I think they had these cards to go into a store and the the merchants accepted it as value. The only problem with it was that it it took 20 minutes for it to go across all those nodes and get to the final place. Is that the downside of blockchain? The speed of it? I mean, mean, Blockchains are often sold as silver bullets, and they're just mm. so far from that. They're, simp- they're simply just databases. They're okay. almost entirely back-end solutions. And yeah, there's a lot of front-end and user experience issues that exist across this uh, kind of emerging industry. There's, in my view, almost zero consumer-ready technology that's been built yet. For the mm. most part, this technology is too complicated. Uh even the whole idea of having a public and private key where you actually own your own value is so far from what 98% of consumers are ready for. Like you lose your phone or you lose your private key, which holds all this value. There's no, there's no refunds. There's no way of getting it back. I mean, 
that immutability, which is a huge boon for security and, and actually ensuring that people own the value that they create and earn, uh, is also a major downside because people are not good at computer security. People are using the same username and password for their Facebook, for their Instagram, for their bank account, uh, for their computer login. And that's right. not <laughs> right. operational security. And so for the most part, blockchain technology is incredibly difficult to use. It's very difficult to implement. Uh, we're, we're not good at security yet. And so until people become better educated or the user experience and the user interface of these applications become exponentially better, uh, seeing mainstream crypto asset and blockchain technology adoption is very hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. We're in the very earliest stages. Uh, and, you know, sometimes people don't want immutability. Think about payment. Like sometimes I buy, I make a purchase from a company and they don't deliver it. I want a refund. There needs to be recourse there. And we haven't built those solutions yet. So there are lots of downsides to blockchain. And 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 moreover, uh, just implementing them, it's incredibly difficult. It's like gutting your pre-existing database infrastructure and implementing something totally new that you often don't even control. Mm-hmm. That, that's something that many organizations and individuals are not comfortable with yet. And, and so that might be a couple of downsides, but to, just to go back and for people and the adults that we talked about where it just goes right over their head, you were talking about JP Morgan and the centralized systems and how those are, like you said, Facebook and JP Morgan have been hacked because it's a centralized system. I just want to emphasize the point for the adults listening that you're saying it's so hard to hack because... Uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, this code is being uh, re-encrypted each time it goes on a new node around... Well, well, quite simply, once you broadcast the transaction, now thousands of computers around the world are validating that transaction, and there's no way to go back and change the ledger because you would need to somehow convince thousands of computers around the world that don't know each other okay. that you can identify to go reverse that transaction. The, the, the likelihood of you being able to reverse a transaction on the blockchain is the same as being able to turn a chicken nugget back into a chicken. Mm, got it. So, Jeremy, I've had a really fun conversation today. I've learned a ton. Um, I have two more questions. And the first one is, is blockchain the future? Like I said, it's not a silver bu- bullet. But in this very, as I said, Orwellian world that we live in, Moving to a world that's less centralized and more decentralized, more auditable, because, you know, when you broadcast these transactions to a blockchain network, all of a sudden you have a record of transactions that anybody can see. You're given more auditability, you're giving more transparency, you're given this immutability that is often a boon, and you create a more trustworthy world in which you don't have to uh, trust centralized authorities, you can go and verify. Uh, and, and that's really important. I, I don't think most of the world's largest organizations have earned our trust. Mm. And thus, we should be work, striving for a world in which we don't have to trust them. Mm. And th- that's my goal, is to create that sort of uh, world. Uh, that's what blockchain technology can help us move towards. But as I said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in between. Uh, ideally, you know, we will see the decentralization of value over the coming decades. I think it's the only way to have a, a world that is not controlled by some large oligopolies and big governments. Uh, but it's 
not necessarily the future that we'll take or that we'll have. You know, too many people passively accept the the the, the total loss of privacy um, and individuality that the internet once promised us, and it instead have kind of sacrificed all of that uh, for convenience and convincing people that there are tools that that are just as convenient, if not more convenient, that also give them the sovereignty that they are owed as individuals uh, is an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. It's obviously the future I'm trying to create, but it's by no means a guarantee. Right. And then Jeremy, lastly, uh, I'm just going to go back to one of the first things you said. I was a delinquent. I was a, a screw up. I was into different things and I didn't have a direction. What advice would you give to you know your 23-year-old self or somebody in similar shoes who kind of likes this stuff, might be a delinquent, might be a screw-up, um, but just doesn't have any direction right now? What advice would you give to them? Go and find something that you're passionate, I mean, about and, and just immerse yourself. You know, learn as much as you can, educate yourself as much as you can. But find something that most people don't understand, something that's new, something that feels risky, something that's, you know, probably more likely than not, not going to be successful. Because in the 5% probability, 10% probability that it is, it doesn't matter what your skill set is, you're now a bona fide expert, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so whether that area is, you know, something like cannabis or AI or biotech is, you know, some sort of frontier technology for the most part is really good. Go learn to code. I mean, you know, coding is a new blue collar. Go, you know, forget college, go spend 30K on a coding boot camp for two months and then have, you know, almost a guaranteed six figure job when you finish. I mean, there's so many better ways to enter the workforce than getting a diploma. um, If you know what you want to do and you know what you're passionate about, it's about finding those passions. It's about, you know, really pursuing something because you love it and pursuing something that's not conventional. I mean, you know, if you follow convention, you're going to live a very conventional life. You have right. to go and buck the trend and be willing to take risks. And you have to be willing to fail. Um, if you're willing to fail and, you're, and, and you can recognize when you're failing for some reason and failing quickly and iterating, and moving on to what could potentially be successful, you will be. But uh, it, it takes time. You have to have a high uh, pain, a tolerance for pain. You have, a, a high, have to have a high tolerance for being doubted. Uh, but if you're a fuck up, who cares? Like, no, 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 nobody expects you to be successful anyway. So, right, exactly. Hey, well, Jeremy, we appreciate your time here on the Religious Podcast, the Jordan episode, episode twenty-three, and this is the first time we had uh, a, the a bona fide blockchain expert uh, on the show. So, thanks for coming on. It's it's really inspiring uh, for someone who is younger than you, as well as I'm sure it's inspiring for the hundreds of uh, young entrepreneurs and aspiring. Uh, young professionals who are about to hear this. So thank you for your time. My pleasure, man. Anytime. And folks, you can check out uh, more leaders like Jeremy at real-leaders.com. Go on there. Pick up a magazine, real-leaders.com slash shop. I know Jeremy, my guy, he's going to be reading it. And uh, with that, everybody, real recognize real. And Jeremy, my friend, always keep it real, brother. Thanks, man.